Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Glossy Beauty Podcast. This is Emma Sandler, Glossy's Beauty and Wellness Editor. And today I'm joined by Sarah Sprickfeiner, our Senior Reporter for Glossy Pop, and Lexi Lebsack, our West Coast Correspondent for Glossy. Ladies, it's our last podcast of the year. To kick things off, I'd like to turn the conversation over to Lexi, who's done some great reporting since she joined in the fall about the state of the indie beauty industry. Thanks, Emma. I'm so happy to be here with both of you. This is my, I think, my second pod that I've recorded, so I'm very excited. But I know when I started uh, with the team in October, I kind of hit the ground running with a few stories covering some of the issues in the indie beauty world. I think we can all agree that indie beauty has had a very, very hard year. Um, it's actually funny because I listened to the end of your podcast that you two recorded with Liz last year. And it's, you know, I, I was sort of thinking, oh my gosh, this is such a unique issue. But really, you talked about it last year as well, which I think is really interesting. But there were just so many things that were impacting the uh, the indie beauty the indie beauty world this year. And it certainly felt like so many brands were closing. Um, should we should we do a little in memoriam of the of some of the closed brands? I think yeah. so, yeah. Uh, well, this is this is just a partial list, really. But Wildcat, Lila B, Vesca Beauty, Faculty, Aether Beauty, Playa Hair Care, Happy Dance. It certainly feels like we could just kind of go on and on and on. And um, you know, one of the stories that I did when I joined um, that did really well that I think sort of encapsulates this problem is a confession story where um, the founder of a primarily DTC-focused brand, you know, told me all about the ups and downs of eventually closing her brand. And I think it sort of describes a lot of the problems that a lot of these brands were having. And I think that was sort of rising inflation. Um, There was this massive increased customer acquisition costs that we all know sort of started with the changes in iOS 14, um, soaring interest rates, a contracting VC landscape that's really like turned up the financial pressure on these bands on these brands and and then also I reported quite a bit on some unexpected lawsuits that were sort of the nail in the coffin for some of these brands um, primarily prop 65 which I know is still impacting tons of brands um, that are selling in California which is mostly brands <laughs> most brands so remind me what prop 65 is. Prop 65 is officially known as the Safe Drinking Water and Toxic Enforcement Act of 1986, which um, started in 1986. And so it's not necessarily on everyone's radar because it's not this big new regulation or anything. It's this, you know, old law that basically requires brands um, to list out any of the ingredients found in their products that are on this very large list. Um, that California keeps of ingredients that are known to the state of California to potentially cause health issues. So a lot of brands uh, simply aren't complying with this, um, whether it's, you know, whether they don't know about it or they simply choose not to, um, but they're not listing these ingredients that are found and they're getting in a lot of trouble and it's costing, um, you know, brands a lot of money. And it's one of the things that I think are driving brands to have additional financial hardship. And uh, at least one brand that I spoke to um, was had actually closed up shop because of this. So it's just, you know, I, I feel like it's just this mounting, mounting pressure for indie brands. And coming off of the pandemic, it's like, it's, it's tough out there. 
You know what I had also heard is that in addition to the Prop 65 lawsuits, a lot of small brands get targeted for ADA web compliance, that it's not accessible to people. And it's sort of like the equivalent of patent trolls. You have people who are going after very small brands for not being compliant on this very specific niche thing that they're supposed to be, but they do fall through the cracks. Yeah, 100%. I've also heard a lot about the ADA lawsuits. Um, And, you know, I agree with you. It's like there should be functionality on websites for people who are differently abled, 100%. Um, But I, I do think that one of the things that brands tell me a lot is that there is not a lot of knowledge about this. I think that some brands don't necessarily know. And, you know, of course that is, is would be considered negligence, but um, yeah, I think they don't know. And then there's this whole other layer to stuff going on in California, which is that there are all of these civil prosecutors um, or citizen prosecutors, sorry. Um, so there are all these citizen prosecutors that are basically empowered by the attorney general in California to go after brands that are not in compliance and they can basically sue them even if no one's been harmed necessarily. I think the other thing is like on a just more basic level is that in the early 2010s, the barrier to entry to create a beauty brand just got so low and the saturation got so high. I think we saw that really blow up in the clean beauty space and with brands that sort of weren't entering Sephora, but were more likely if they were entering retail at all to enter a clean beauty retailer, um, which is part of why now we see so many of these small, um, you know, independently owned brands closing. And it, it it's, it's sad to watch some of the brands that closed had products that I think we, a, a bunch of us really liked. Um, but it, it's sort it's sort of an inevitability because there was just such an onslaught of launches in the late 20 teens, um, and so I think it's safe to say, and I'll you know I'll let you guys let me know if you agree that we probably haven't seen the last of it. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you, Sarah. I think that one of the things that my confession subject that I was just talking about told me is that you know, it's really, really easy to start a brand nowadays. It's incredibly simple to go to a contract manufacturer to have them whip something up with no money out of your pocket at the jump um, to create something for, you know, pretty low stakes, but selling a brand (laughs) and building a brand (laughs) and getting people to purchase your products. That's an entirely different ballpark. Yeah, brands really have to prioritize from the jump being profitable, which is such a shift from that mid-2010s period. I always reference WeWork as an example of let's grow as big as we can and we'll figure out how to be profitable afterwards. But with interest rates rising, it's no longer it no longer makes sense to invest in a newer brand where there's a lot of inherent risk, you know, if you're a venture capitalist, and then instead you could just park your money in a high-yield savings account and earn a sustainable source of income that makes potentially even more money. So I think that's why we're seeing this dearth of activity in the venture capital space 
there's fewer quality brands as well. So we've seen fewer deals in the private equity space, which tends to be larger brands. And we've seen fewer deals in the acquisition space, which is usually strategic acquirers. There was so much going on in 2019 and 2020 that some companies are are good. They don't need to add more to their portfolio. But then there's also just a, a lack of viable brands, save for a few exceptions. Of course, Elf Beauty bought Naturium in August. L'Oreal purchased Aesop from Naturio Co. in April. And then Caring Group bought Creed in June. And I think fragrance will be a big area of activity in 2024. Advent International, a private equity firm, also recently acquired Perfumes to Marley as another example of that high-end luxury niche fragrance space. Yeah, it's pretty crazy what we're seeing happening with fragrance right now. I just wrote a story about some of the changes that potentially could impact fragrance and going through some of for next year um, and going through some of the stats. It's wild. It's like, I wonder if we just all took a break from fragrance in the pandemic. I know I did. And now there's this entire rush of, you know, refilling people's medicine cabinets with more fragrance. Um, you know, appealing them to them with new launches and also capturing lapsed fragrance users as well. I just wrote a story about Clean Reserve launching a water-based ethyl alcohol-free fragrance, and it's going to launch in-store in Sephora on December 26th, which I think just shows how much they're really um, betting on fragrance in a new way in the sensitive skin okay formula. Um, You know, going through some of these fragrance stats, LVMH's fragrance and cosmetics division, which we know has Dior, Stella McCartney, grew 13% year over year during the first half of the year. Uh, L'Oreal's Luxe division reported double-digit fragrance growth across all regions. Uh, We saw, obviously, the big acquisitions that Emma just mentioned, um, even on for quarters where things necessarily didn't go great, we saw Estee Lauder, for example, in November report a 10% decrease in net sales for their first year of the fiscal 2024. But they did mention that despite that, every single fragrance brand had reported increased earnings. So that's like Lalabo, Tom Ford. Um, and then not to do too much stats here, but last one, I swear, which is that Circana just came out with some data just yesterday. So this is Monday, um, says that, that says that fragrance continues to be a top gifted item among U.S. consumers. Fragrance sales were off to a very strong start in the fourth quarter with dollar sales through December 2nd up 12% compared to the year before and already on par with total Q4 sales generated in 2022. So that means that we're already going to be head and shoulders above last year. And what's more, they also report that last year, leading up to Christmas for three weeks, that saw 49% of Q4 fragrance sales. And we know that Sephora is 20% off for beauty insiders right now for fragrance. So I can only imagine what these numbers are going to look like when we wrap the year. I think it's also worth noting with respect to Clean Reserve that Dior, this was in 2022, mind you, but they came out with their first alcohol-free fragrance. So we're seeing across the spectrum of 
prestige and luxury fragrances that everyone's trying to find some way to innovate and improve and meet the customers with their new expectations of clean or of fragrance itself. Yeah, I feel like I'm that customer. I stopped wearing fragrance in the pandemic because it's like, why? And then recently, the last year, I feel like I've been wanting to dabble back in, but then the fragrances I was wearing before feel so heavy now to me for some reason. So I'm into the lighter um, sort of movement that's happening. I feel like I got into fragrance more during the pandemic. Like I was working from home. I was working with like no one next to me. And I was still wearing Glossier U. It felt like a very nice daytime light fragrance. I always think of fragrance as like the accessory on or the last accessory of an outfit. And so I match it to my mood or I match it to like what I'm doing that day. So I, I got more into it. But then again, I'm kind of like, you know, that old Marilyn Monroe thing about how she wore Chanel number no. five to bed and that's all she wore. I'm like kind of like that person. Like I love fragrance. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's true. The pandemic impacted fragrance less than you might expect. I believe that what I have read and learned in the past is that while there was an initial step back, people, you know, were wearing their sweats. And uh, as people settled in, they actually started to wear fragrance at home um, and it became part of their daily practices. The other theory that I have is that in the, and this is, you know, not backed by anything but my own opinion and, you know, the day-to-day reporting and sort of existing in this industry that I do is that as people and younger and younger people become consumed with the beauty industry, let's say they start with skincare, like we're seeing nine and 10-year-olds buying, you know, everything from bubble at an affordable price point to drunk elephant at a very much less affordable price point right now, they start to collect skincare and they saturate themselves with a category. And then they start to think, okay, well, what about makeup? Especially as they get older. Okay, makeup. Uh, Maybe they enter their tween years and teen years and they start to wear a little makeup. Maybe they get their first rare beauty blush, which back in the day for me was Benetint. And you know, they're, they're, they're dabbling in category by category. And the thing about the beauty industry is that there is no shortage of consumerist opportunities. There's always something new. So, you know, say that you've discovered face masks, well, have you yet discovered under eye masks? And, you know, there is always some niche category, you know, there's there's a mask for your eyelashes should you choose to discover that and and that's really my point with fragrance is that it i think for many people and you see this with the rise of of perfume talk is that it became this thing that they could discover and then it's sort of like a a monster is unleashed because you see these people that have uh collections in the hundreds if not thousands of bottles that they could really never use, but um, it becomes, and, and I mean, I'm 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 guilty of that. Although I've obviously gotten many of them for work, um, it's it becomes something where it's really a collector's mentality, which is what I think we have across the beauty industry now. So fragrance, while maybe it's not 
for many people their entry into the beauty industry. Once they discover it, they're like, okay, so I have my, you know, daytime scent that I love, but what's going to be my date night scent that I love? And I think for, you know, a young girl going on their first dates or having their first, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, like all of that presents more and more, frankly, exciting opportunities to buy stuff. And so marketers have quite the opportunity with fragrance. I know that's quite cynical, but that's what I think. A question for both of you with respect yeah. to perfume perfume talk. What <laughs> impact do you think TikTok shop will have on perfume talk? Mm, that's a good a question. A big one. Yeah, I agree. I agree. A big one. And I haven't delved into this, but I would be very curious to know about what's going on there in terms of um, dupe culture and also straight up um, counterfeit products. Because I think that there's probably going to be some issues that arise there. So many counterfeit products. I see so many like fake Korean skincare, sunscreen specifically items. And it's like, that's definitely not approved by the FDA. It should not be sold there or it's purporting to be something that it's not. I've seen fake Summer Fridays lip balms and like obviously fake lip balm is like the least of anyone's problems, but like no, I would disagree. I think that the fake the fake lip problem, I mean, like, I've reported on fakes pretty extensively over the last few years, and I think that it's a lot scarier than people think. I've talked to, you know, young women who have had their lips sealed together with a fake ah, Kylie lip okay, kit. Okay, okay, I retract my statement. With, I, no, I mean... With pink and pink I just meant like it's not it's gonna... Like the, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I know I what you're saying. I just meant like, you know, it's different than like somebody thinking they're applying SPF 50 and they're applying SPF nothing, you know? Like it's, it's not that, but I guess I shouldn't say that there's no risk of something being applied to your mouth. I mean, I think there's... That's something that I'm de- definitely curious to watch in this coming year is counterfeits on TikTok. Sorry, I'm a little bit of a a deviation from your question. I think to answer it more directly, the opportunity for fragrance brands on TikTok shop is huge, just absolutely enormous. And of the brands that I've heard and talked about having success on TikTok shop, there have been a number. And I don't think a single one has been a fragrance brand yet. What about you guys? I have not yet. It's mostly been makeup and skincare yeah, but me it too. But it seems TikTok shop is wild to me because it seems like you just put it there and it will just sell on its own. Yeah. It's kind of crazy to me. And I wonder how well brands are actually prepared for that, particularly the smaller indie brands who this might be their first time really trying to sell that much volume. Yeah. I remember this was a, you know, a big topic in some of the breakout groups at the Glossy Summit last month in Santa Barbara. And some of the complaints that brands had were that it's just almost feels like it's still in beta, where it's like they're having a really hard time to upload their stuff. Um, You know, the categories are being assigned through, I mean, I'm assuming some sort of AI function. So the categories aren't necessarily accurate there. It's not really user friendly for these brands yet, but I, to go back to your question, Emma, I think it's going to absolutely explode. I think also to mention something from the Glossy Summit with Chriselle Lim's 
panel with uh, our editor in chief, Jill. Um, and, you know, we know Chris Silvim is a huge influencer, one of the OG influencers. And then also she is the co-owner of Fleur, a fragrance brand. And she talks a little bit about how this generation, Gen Z, is very, very different because unlike previous generations where you had your signature scent, and I remember a time, I don't know if I'm aging myself here, but I remember a time where it was considered rude to ask what fragrance someone is wearing because it was probably their signature scent and they probably didn't want to tell you. And, um, you know, so now I think that there's this big, huge sea change where the younger generation, they want to talk about their fragrance and they want to share what fragrance they're wearing and they want a fragrance wardrobe. And so they want to buy all these additional fragrances. And I think that really goes into something that Sarah has reported on a lot, which is perfume talk. Uh, I know that it's at, what did we say, 5.6 billion posts of perfume talk. That's crazy. Do you realize how old you sound by saying the youngins? No, but you can't. <laughs> the youth. You can't fight it. <laughs> I'm so far from a 20 year old at this point. Like, I, I, um, I chat with my 18 year old niece, and I'm just like getting an education. It's awesome. I'm like, tell me more. What else? Uh, yes, it's a completely different generation, completely so different, different world for sure. Yeah. <laughs> what has fascinated me about perfume talk is. I mean, if you think about it, like all of us live relatively close to, you know, a Sephora or an Ulta, but some of the people buying purchases, uh, purchasing fragrance, you know, they're essentially buying them, uh, how do I put this, uh, smell unsmelled, you know, like they, they're they just going for it based on what some of these uh, fr- perfume talk influencers are saying and and. It's been a really uh, a, a world full of opportunity for them too. Some of the big ones have um, have gotten big op- opportunities. So there's one prof- I, I always mess up her handle, but it's Professor Perfume, I think, and she got to create uh, her wedding scent with Sniff. Uh, it's called Vow Factor, and it sold out immediately on the day that it launched. Um, so they are getting, you know, the same opportunities as other big beauty influencers, even though they have um, really niched down and are known exclusively for perfume TikTok. So fascinating space um, that we will continue to watch in the new year. It never ceases to amaze me how powerful some of these influences, influencers are, especially on TikTok. Sarah, what's going on with influencers right now? What are your big, like, takeaways for the end of the year? Yeah, it's been another, you know, interesting year in the world of influencers. Um, We're seeing people, you know, continue to sort of debate short form versus long form content. Um, And really a big thing that I focused on this year was the growth of sort of the everyday person as an influencer and some of the frustration really I think that normal people who spend their hard-earned dollars uh, felt with some of the excess and extravagance that influencers uh, have in their everyday lives and someone who I had a lot of really fascinating conversations um, 
we had her speak on one of our virtual events um, was Lindsay Carter, the founder of Set Active, who has done a really great job at growing such a passionate community around her her brand, which makes um, started as firmly a activewear brand, but now really makes sort of like um, casual apparel. Um, and part of how she's done this is really just by rewarding brand fans. And I would go as far as to call them really brand advocates. And some of my ideas around this started when I was observing people doing something that Outdoor Voices used to do, which was hosting like brand walks and hikes. Um, and it was so funny to me because with Outdoor Voices, um, you know, there was this obvious organic connection of like, yeah, we sell leggings, come wear your leggings and go on a walk with us. And Set Active had that too. But but what they did was they invited um, Tanks, the, you know, influencer who is mega influential with millennial women um, in particular and Gen Z women. But um, they had Tinks host a, a walk in New York City, and it was around the time that Tinks's book had come out. And then sort of right around that same time, Mara Beauty, a clean skincare brand, um, they were doing some community walks, which I believe, um, if I recall correctly, they really just sort of put out on their Instagram um, and say clean makeup, sold at Sephora, same thing. They were sort of just inviting people um, to go on runs with them in the park, very casual, um, and had some sort of branded merch for that. So I reached out to all these founders, and I talked to them about these community events. You know, why, why are you doing them? What's motivating them? What's what's getting people to come? Because... Um, you know, I don't know about you guys, but it it wasn't something that I, I could really see myself necessarily doing. And not just because I'm not a runner. Um, and I think it, it speaks to so many things. It speaks to how starved so many young people are for community, which is something that makes me sad, but is very true. Um and then it speaks to, I mean, it speaks to, you know, on a, on a lighter, on a lighter level, just how much everyone is motivated by free stuff, even if it's snacks. Um, it wound up becoming a five-week series in the pop newsletter um, in the fall. Um, one and one was about sort of um, brands sending out PR boxes to normal customers. Um and that's something I'm seeing more and more. And I find myself taking screenshots of brands and founders, Instagram, and it'll just be like, you know, leave a comment to enter to win the PR box. I even noticed I didn't go to Sephora. It got rained out when I was supposed to go. But um, I noticed that one brand had something. It was like one of those Wheel of Fortune type things. And one of the winning options was like uh, win a year on our on our PR so I think there's become this saturation of influencer culture to the point that normal, quote, quote, normal people can't avoid it. And not everybody wants to be a content creator, but I think there was this frustration of, well, I'm spending my money with this brand. Why, why am I not getting any of these perks? Yeah. Wait, why did the brand founders say that they were doing the walks? As a way to, uh, you know bring people together mm -hmm. and 
they found that, you know, people truly do that something as simple as like having affinity for the same lip gloss could be a way for people to make friends. And and look, I can be a really, really cynical person. And so for me, I was sort of like, huh? What? Um, but these events have been successful. Oftentimes, uh, having a, a, a cap that was reached, you know, like like filling up. They couldn't have more people come whether that's because they only had so many, you know, branded hats to give out or whatever. But I think they're seeing the same thing, that people are starved for community and people want to gather around something. Um, Say has a, a private Facebook group that, while I'm not in it, it sounds like it's popping to that end. A couple months ago, I did a, a newsletter um, about... Jones Road and Trinity London, both of which have slightly older audiences, um, and both of which have very active Facebook groups. I it's fascinating the way that beauty brands can form communities sort of around them, even if it's um, you know women sort of sharing tips for how to use a product. Um, and so I think this intersection of community and influencer and the regular person sort of becoming the influencer will be more and more of a quote quote thing in in 2024 and I'm I, I mean it's definitely a pop theme but I would I would guess that you guys have seen that too in some of your coverage um it's also been a huge thing in terms of brands bringing in um college campuses and you know, working with younger demographics in that way. So I'm sure you guys have touched on some of that in your coverage too. Yeah. I loved your story about college campuses. I feel like that's just, why wouldn't you as a brand just be all over college campuses? These kids, like, I call them kids. Oh my gosh, I am aging myself. They're adults. They're over 18. <laughs> oh, but they are. Ch- I just couldn't feel any different than an 18-year-old. So they look so young. They look so young. They look so young. But it's true. It's like, why wouldn't you try to, you know, as a brand, engage these college students? Why wouldn't you try to do these walks to create super fans? Right? It's like, people are, you're totally right. People are looking for community. People are looking for things to do IRL. Um, And you know what? I would disagree with you, Sarah, on one thing, which I think people do want to become influencers. I think that a lot of people agree. No, 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 for sure. They might not say it. No, 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 for sure. They want it. I think not, what I mean by that is I think not everyone is going to put in the work, though. I think not everyone, I mean, I think if there's one thing that my job has taught me, it's that any skepticism that I came into this job with about the work of being a content creator, it is work. It is work. Like, it is so, so much, much work. work. So and it is work. so much work that I would never want to do. It is, I would so much rather have 10 Zooms a day with CEOs and CMOs, which is what I do, than talk to a camera. And like, sure, am I jealous of some of the things that these influencers get to do? Yes. Am I jealous enough that I want to set up a tripod and a ring light? Nope, not that jealous. Don't want to do it. So... I think, I mean, yes, there are so many stats out there on, like, how many Gen Alphas want to be influencers. So, yes, totally aligned on that. But I think there's people that want the perks without doing the work. And I think there's those people are saying, hey, I spent $1,000 of 
my money with you that I work really hard for. And you should be rewarding me too and not just sending stuff to people, um, you know, because they have a lot of followers. And if that's a topic you're interested in, we're running out of time here. I would encourage you to read that Glossy Pop newsletter. But yeah, I mean, there's so many wide-ranging implications of of this. We saw it with um, brands, you know, going to uh, Rush and activating at Rush. And we saw it with brands showing up at the Eras Tour and handing out friendship bracelets. There have just been so many examples of brands, uh, whether it's, you know, getting in on wider cultural moments or um, just as as is often said in marketing, meeting people where they are. So tons of examples of that. With that in mind, Sarah, tell me, when it comes to influencers and all that you cover at Glossy Pop, what do you think 2024 is going to be? What's your prediction? Um, I definitely think we're going to continue to see more of this. And I think that with regards to the influencers themselves, there's a constant, you know, pressure on them to sort of prove their uh, to use a much overused word, but to prove their authenticity. Um, and so to that end, I'm expecting to see more long-term partnerships, more sort of dedicated um, one less one-offs and more um, long-term connections between brand and influencer. But definitely community is not going anywhere. That's completely fair. I think my own prediction, or really my hope, is that we move away from the word authenticity and focus more <laughs> on the word integrity. <laughs> Lexi, what about you? What predictions do you have for 2024? Mm, um, you know, I would say that 2024 is going to be a big roller coaster year for indie brands. I think we're going to continue to see brands needing to close, needing to pivot, needing to reformulate because as we know, the MOCRA legislation is hitting the Modernization of Cosmetics Regulation Act of 2022, which is going to create some changes, give the FDA some more power in how they're you know, regulating the beauty industry. And I think that there will be some reformulations, some closures, some pivoting. And I think that when we come out of 2024, though, we'll end up being a, a better beauty industry. Love that optimism. Sarah, Lexi, thank you so much for joining me to recap this year. This is our last podcast for 2023. So for those listening, join us again in 2024.